And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Coast Guard needs to better protect its own emergency responders. Plus, how to keep policy from making procurement less efficient and a mess. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Postal Service is not quite in the same dire shape now as it was at the height of the pandemic. But it's still not out of its long-term financial challenges. USPS is more than two years into a 10-year reform plan that involves a major redo of its network. The man with that plan, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, says a bright future does lay ahead for USPS if Congress and the postal regulator can butt out. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman recently sat down with DeJoy, and he joins us with the highlights. And Jory, this was a long time working to get this guy to sit down and talk with you. What is the Postal Service's current financial situation? They're still losing, right? They are, but they are in a different situation, like you said, in the lead time from the height of the pandemic when Postmaster General Louis Joy first took office. The Postal Service was months away from running out of cash. It was a dire situation. Congress intervened, gave them $10 billion to stay afloat. And the rest of that is up to them as far as those self-help initiatives to turn things around. Where we're looking at now, the Postal Service has between 18 and $19 billion cash on hand. That's going to get spent down pretty quickly, though, with the capital investments the Postal Service is looking to make. They're looking to make billions of dollars in investments in its network and in a next generation fleet of vehicles. And, you know, so far things are a little rocky for this year, driven in large part by inflation. The Postal Service, given the most recent numbers that we have on hand, they're looking at a $4.7 billion net loss for the fiscal year so far. That's more than double the projection they had for this year. This was supposed to be a break-even year for the Postal Service under its 10-year plan, and that just hasn't materialized just yet. All right. And what exactly are those changes they're making to the network? A really big change to the network and one of the drivers of improved revenue and cutting costs, according to this plan, is standing up a bunch of sorting and delivering centers across the country. This is a consolidation of some functions across the network to be this one-stop shop where USPS processing and delivery operations are all under one roof here. And this is something that has gotten the notice of the Postal Regulatory Commission. They have opened a public inquiry into this. They've asked the Postal Service to shed more light on what this is going to look like. This is something that DeJoy and USPS management has pushed back strongly against. For DeJoy, this is a pretty, considering that from his perspective, the commission uh, was very late in giving the USPS pricing flexibility. Rates did go up earlier this month on July 9th, and USPS is going to continue using that higher authority. But from DeJoy's perspective, this is a a needless intervention by the commission to oversee this network change. And what about the USPS workforce while they're doing this network overhaul? That involves them too, correct? Yeah. And what DeJoy says is that given his plans to grow the business of USPS and make them something that is going to be a going concern for years to come, they're going to need to aggressively hire just to keep the current headcount in place. Just to give you an estimate here, the Postal Service employs north of 600,000 employees, but they lose about 40,000 employees every year due to attrition. And so here's DeJoy on the future of the USPS workforce. So I think over the next 
10 years, you know, we're going to be hiring, have to hire like 300,000 people, right, to, to keep the flow going. And in that, we will shape it. We will shape the workforce, right? We watch where we, uh, where, where we add pre-careers, where we convert full-time, right, as we start moving the plants and, and all this. So I, I really don't think – I mean, we're going to have to ask people to move around, move from this plant to that plant, move from this delivery unit to that delivery unit. We're going to build up. All right. And DeJoy recognizes, though, that uh, this turnover is a fact of life there. He does. And he says even though there are efforts underway to reduce that rate of turnover uh, and convert pre-career people to full career status, he says even with those best efforts, there's always going to be a reasonably high rate of turnover. Even if we get our pre-career hiring methodology good, we'll still have a 20 percent turnover at its best case because it's just hard work. You don't get to go to boot camp to figure out if you want to come here first, right? Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, and you talked at length with him, Jory, about the future of the USPS business, the mix of what they'll be delivering and so forth, and what did he tell you there? Well, one big part of growing USPS is going after package business, competing with folks like UPS, FedEx, and DHL, capturing more of that market share with the packages. That was something that was huge under the COVID-19 pandemic. And something else that was huge under the pandemic was USPS partnering with the Biden administration to mail millions of COVID tests to households all across the country. These are Current numbers as of June, but 755 million tests went out to two-thirds of American households. DeJoy says this was showcasing what USPS can do, and he says there are more plans for him working with other agencies for their mission and being their preferred delivery provider of choice. And there's more things for us to do in that area. And I, I, I want to get my team. I mean, I go personally, go visit some of these agencies that have things scattered all throughout the nation. There's, who's going to be more responsive than us in terms of who's going to have more positions than, you know, than us? We have places to put things. We just never thought that way before, right? And I didn't want to put the cart before the horse. I had to get our structure running around. And now that it's on its way and i got people that can lead that. And what about the long-term viability here? Because they still lose money every year and they've got to buy these trucks and costs to that were saddled on them because some of them, too many of them, well, a lot of them have to be electric which is more expensive and there's no infrastructure, so it's costly. What about the long term here, Jory? Right. It's a lot of moving pieces, like you pointed out, Tom. One sign of whether things are headed in the right direction or not, keep an eye out for fiscal year 2024. That is going to be the year that USPS is supposed to break even financially, where its revenue and its costs match up. And so they're going to be able to turn things around, not be in the red for so uh, severe a loss. And so what DeJoy said is that at this point, it's really too hard to say whether they will meet that break-even goal next year, just given everything we've seen. But he said, you know, even if the 10-year plan works out as, you know, according to plan, uh, he's looking longer term. He's looking decades out to make sure that USPS is able to weather uh, additional changes and stay flexible to things that aren't readily apparent just yet. Wow. Interesting thought. Yeah. Although I got to take a little issue when he says, well, we're an independent organization. Well, they wouldn't have a postal board of governors and a Congress if they were truly independent. But nevertheless, they do operate kind of in a profit and loss situation with 
the constitutional mandate to deliver mail everywhere. That's a tough paradox. It is. And as you point out, I did ask DeJoy how long he wants the job for. You know, that he did point out that is something that is up to the board to decide. They make those hiring and firing decisions of postmasters general. But if it's up to him, he says he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, because prior postmasters have come from the postal ranks of career in a couple of cases, and they're good, dedicated people, but they're not really radical thinkers about the systemic and pro- you know, long-term problems of the Postal Service. DeJoy likes to break things and rearrange them, doesn't he? That is very much his way of doing things. And how is he personally? He seems like a guy that's uh, really down-to-earth, a uh, straight talker, cordial to you. He certainly relishes the work. That's something that he told me himself. Uh, to give you a picture of things, Tom, I sat down with him last week. I got to the Postal Service headquarters at six o'clock we agreed to do an hour and a half interview and when i left headquarters around eight o'clock he was getting ready for another meeting so he keeps some pretty long hours but he says that's what it takes to turn this place around 6 a.m or 6 p.m 6 p.m wow (laughs) no cocktails though huh no no federal news network's jory heckman thanks so much thanks tom and be sure to check out Jory's postal coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a business plan for reform of the Small Business Administration. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Frontline contracting officers contend with a lot of policy. One thing about policy, it's always changing, and that can get in the way of basic efficiency and pricing considerations. At last week's National Contract Management Association World Congress in Nashville, I discussed this with John Tanaglia, the Principal Director of Pricing and Contracting at the Defense Department, and with Janice Muskoff, the Director of Price, Cost, and Finance. Here's an excerpt, and understand it was a loud exhibit hall. And what goes into pricing expertise and knowledge of what prices ought to be? Okay, well, that is a tough subject because, like you said, you would think it would be easy, but it's not necessarily. So one of the things that I do is I'm very involved in training. And as a professional with 34 years in this business, there's a lot that you learn over time. And so one of the things that I focus on is partnering with organizations like Defense Acquisition University, to teach folks out in contracting and pricing the really tough stuff in our business. So whereas you think it might be simple, in a competitive world, I would say pricing can be much more simple, but then we also have our sole source contracts where it becomes more and more challenging. Yeah, so I guess the main challenge then is knowing what the cost elements are that go into something that you're buying, whether it's manufactured or it's a service or software development, and then knowing what an industry norm is for a profit. Is that kind of how we arrive at prices rather than working price on down? So it's going to depend on the circumstances. If you have competition, that drives price reasonableness. Now, we have laws that help us. One of them is called truthful cost or pricing data and uh, formerly known as the Truth in Negotiations Act. And there's exceptions to when companies have to provide what we call certified cost or pricing data. When they do, so say it's a major weapons platform, 
it's not competed. We are now in with one vendor, we're locked. And so then you start getting into what are the cost elements the company's required to provide data to put the contracting officer on equal footing. And we even have tools to aid contracting officers in terms of things like what would a reasonable profit objective be for purpose of the negotiation. And then, of course, there's a lot of analysis that goes into looking at the data in order to figure out from a government contracting perspective, what do we think a fair and reasonable price is? Yes, because I guess a contractor could be totally honest, but wrong, which is a different situation than if they're deliberately making up cost elements. But inflation, changes in raw material markets, sudden changes in labor markets locally can all affect what goes into a price, fair to say? So I would talk about the difference between the facts that we ask uh, companies to provide. Transparency of information is pretty key. Uh, a lot of the substantiation of prices that are proposed involve facts. Some involve judgment. And so we have techniques to deal with either, and ultimately it comes down to negotiation. Now your session here at NCMA, I'll read a sentence from it. How can you balance the need for efficiency while navigating through existing and emerging policies? What were you talking about? So we stand in a position to implement a lot of the policies that the Congress enacts through the National Defense Authorization Act. Those are policy sure. objectives to advance various interests. Let's say cybersecurity, for example. That's one that comes up quite frequently, recognizing there are positive effects right. of making sure that the, the controls that we have over our sensitive information that's unclassified is sufficient so it's protected. But the balance is, what are the compliance burden that's associated with that? Striking the balance in that one particular area. But there's a lot of other areas of public policy, advanced socioeconomic objectives, whether it's in executive orders that the president signs or in the statutes. And so the, that balancing act comes down to the policies that we implement, either through the rulemaking process. We manage the federal acquisition regulation and the defense federal acquisition regulation supplements, sure, the DFARS. Yep. And so that's the formal side of, of our business and implementing and balancing the interest. When we go through rulemaking, we seek public comment and making sure that we're understanding what the cost impacts of these compliance are, requirements are. My guests are John Tanaglia, he's Principal Director for Defense Pricing and Contracting at the Defense Department, and Janice Muskoff, the Director of Price, Cost, and Finance. And so the implication then is that new rules, new regulations have a compliance cost. They might even have a physical cost in terms of people or labor, and so you have to understand that. So you have to read all those things under 800-0 through 800-99, sometimes even more than that to understand the impact on contractors, fair to say? I think that there can absolutely be a cost to compliance. And, you know, there's different sources for the policies that come about. Sometimes they're, you know, congressionally mandated, right? And so we go through the public rulemaking process. We look at, you know, impacts. But at the end of the day, you know, if, if it's a law that stems from our Congress, you know, we're going to put that into the default. Sure. Understood. All right. So give us maybe some examples of a policy that could be reflected in price, finance, costing, all of these issues. Let me talk about, so just uh, the week before last, we issued 
guidance on use of other transaction authority. Right. That's a non-FAR-based that. authority. <laughs> yep. And so this is an opportunity to somewhat normalize how other transaction agreements are executed across the department. But the balancing act we're taking there is not wanting to impose a FAR-like regulatory regime on the use of other transaction authority. Yeah, you but, kill the goose. Right, exactly. So, But we also want to demonstrate to the Congress that we're responsibly using that authority, in most cases for prototypes, mm -hmm. potentially for follow-on production. But there are some aspects to transparency of those transactions that we want to make sure that's captured. So we're not going to have a standard slate of terms and conditions for OT agreements like we have with the FAR and the DFAR, but we do want to have some reporting and understanding of where those dollars are going. And also we're recognizing the consortium style with its most recent issuance. We know uh, many of the components across the department are using the consortium style of right. other transaction authorities. So yes, just providing yep. some guidance about how that's done in an optimal way. Yeah, and some of the uh, energetics, there's a big consortium around that for the Defense Department. There's a couple of these different consortia going, and they kind of are an abstraction layer in sourcing, right, for the DOD. So you got to know what's happening under that layer. Yeah, so that, that's one great example, and so we want to make sure that uh, people are aware of that because there's a tendency to recreate some of these things. The department is, is a very large institution, and yeah. we want to make sure that through communities of practice, people understand where they can access existing mm -hmm. consortia. So what are some of the factors that could cause a financial or pricing effect from a need for compliance? Is it all labor? Is it all just activity by the contractor that involves people? Janet? So it's interesting because as part of our defense contract finance study that came out at the end of April, there is a segment that actually starts looking at things like accounting systems, cost accounting standards, and can you determine the cost of compliance? And it's a very challenging area in terms of actually defining there's X you know, amount of dollars. And, and what the data showed that we saw is that you're not gonna see a consistent answer, it always costs X amount. And you know, some companies are already subject to things like GAAP, and then we get into more specific areas depending on what kind of contract type that they're taking on. Say it's cost reimbursable. And one of the things that came out of the finance study that was really interesting to me is when you look at who is actually subject to things like cost accounting standards, which are, I would say, the most strict mm -hmm. when we start thinking about these things, it is actually a very, very small percentage of our defense industrial base. Janet Muskoff, the Director of Price, Cost, and Finance, and John Tanaglia, the Principal Director of Pricing and Contracting at the Defense Department, speaking at the National Contract Management Association's recent World Conference in Nashville. We've got a lot more coverage of NCMA. It'll be posted by this Friday at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Supreme Court shifts the ground under the False Claims Act. But first, the Coast Guard needs to better protect its own emergency responders. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Coast Guard is famous for its field units up and down the coasts. 
They're the ones who launch search and rescue missions when fishing boats capsize or canoes drift into shipping lanes. But the Government Accountability Office has found the field units often don't have the emergency in food and water for themselves. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Heather McLeod. Ms. McLeod, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And you looked at, just to be clear, this is not food and water for people that are rescued, but food and water for the rescue queues themselves who live or at least work for long shifts in harm's way, potentially. Indeed. This is Coast Guard personnel themselves. And we looked at some of the more remote Coast Guard stations to determine the adequacy of their emergency supplies for themselves. And where are some of the remote ones? I mean, you think of them like in, you know, Rehoboth Beach, where you can get off and have some fries down the boardwalk. But this is some areas that might be a little bit more austere. Yes, these can be really small beach towns. It can be remote stations in Alaska, Florida, Oregon, really across the country. And what prompted this query? That seems like a very arcane topic, whether field units of the Coast Guard can, you know, take care of themselves in an emergency. Yeah, well, we actually did a report last year looking at Coast Guard preparedness for tsunami evacuation in the Pacific Northwest. So this is mainly the Washington, Oregon inundation zone. And through our work in that area, we saw that the Coast Guard personnel might not be prepared for emergencies themselves. Congress followed up and asked us to look at this issue more specifically. So we did this study. It was a quick study, but we found the issue pretty readily. How many field stations does the Coast Guard have? Do we know? I can't say off the top of my head, but they are located across the country. And these can be a range of stations from a handful of people to dozens of people. Sure. And across the nations is accurate because there are inland waterways where the Coast Guard operates also, correct? For sure. For sure. The Great Lakes being a great example of that. And does the Coast Guard have a policy over what should be stored and stowed for those field personnel? So while they have a policy, we found that the policy is actually unclear to the stations and the Coast Guard personnel. And the, and the reason for that is just the interpretation of it. Can we buy emergency supplies for ourselves? Can we hold water, you know, in our facilities in case of emergencies? It's actually something that we see federal government wide. There's some questions around procurement on these issues. But basically, we saw a range of sort of understanding of the policy. Yeah, I remember a lot of organizations kind of thought about storing in supplies in the aftermath of 9-11 when people were trapped, you know, for a while or some sort of a disaster they thought could keep people in, riots and so on. So the policy is unclear then whether they should have this. Right. And most units that we talked to did not have emergency supplies. Some of the areas, you know, where you would expect perhaps where there's more frequent hurricanes or events like that, that the personnel do have those supplies and have looked into it. But other stations that don't have these no notice events very frequently just didn't have supplies. Just to make it explicit, then the danger here is that people in the water, dangling from a helicopter, operating a boat to rescue people themselves could be hungry and thirsty. Yeah, it's a case where the Coast Guard personnel themselves become the victims of, you know, a natural disaster, man-made disaster, other kind of event like that. 
We're speaking with Heather McLeod. She's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And so you did a survey. Tell us who you asked and what you found out. Yeah, so we reached out to some of the more remote stations, 32 interviewed and conducted a survey and just asking them what supplies they had on hand, whether they thought they could have supplies on hand, how they would purchase supplies, whether they talked about having supplies, and we're able to gather some really great information. A lot of individuals that are in charge of procurement, we found, didn't know about the procurement policies, thought that having emergency supplies were prohibited, or just didn't know. And this all relates back to unclear policies. Because in the report, there is a picture of one location that has stacks of, I I don't know what's in them, but look like buckets, plastic buckets. And next to that are pallet loads of bottled water. So that place clearly has one view of the policy, but some places have nothing. Absolutely. Some places have nothing. And some places honestly don't have the amount of space that it requires. You know, this photo is taken in a place that actually has the room to have those supplies and they did proceed to acquire them. Right. So the stations vary physically. Some of them might be just like a little hut somewhere type of thing with a boat docked outside. Some might be a warehouse type of operation. For sure. For sure. And did you visit any of them? Sometimes GAO staff visits those places in person. Did your folks go to any of them? We do get out into a number of Coast Guard facilities. And yes, we did on this one as well. And did you find them? Maybe this is outside the scope of the report, but were they in generally good repair? even if they were cramped in some cases? (laughs) Well, the Coast Guard infrastructure is an ongoing issue for the Coast Guard. We've noted in the past that there's a $2.6 billion backlog on Coast Guard infrastructure facilities. This includes these small boat stations, docks, everything on that side. The Coast Guard is trying to make some progress in updating their infrastructure, but there is a huge and ongoing backlog related to these stations. Okay, well, getting back to the food and water issue, then you made some recommendations, and what were they? And I'm assuming they're predicated on the idea that whatever the policy is, or however vague it might be, you feel that the Coast Guard field stations should have emergency food and water stored in there. Absolutely. And the good news is that the Coast Guard does have policies and that from our perspective, if they updated these policies to clarify them and then disseminated them out to the Coast Guard stations in the field, that would really help in this area. And that was the basis of two of our recommendations that they update and clarify their policies related to emergency supplies update the policies related to procurement, as well as they conduct assessments of the risk around these events that might cause them to need these supplies. So the Coast Guard agreed with all of our recommendations and provided us some timelines to implement them, including by next year, this time next year, they plan to update their policies and conduct the assessments. And then the procurement policy is going to take a little bit longer, but just a couple years out. Yes, because there has to be money for this in there. And even though it might be a small amount of money per station, when you add up all the field units, it's some real dollars then possibly. For sure. And the material has to be rotated. I mean, if you don't use the food in 18 months or something, you probably have to replace it. Yes. 
Okay. Well, let's hope they listen here. Heather McLeod is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Supreme Court has shifted the ground under the False Claims Act. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Two recent Supreme Court decisions changed the calculus for contractors when it comes to dealing with the False Claims Act. The court altered long-standing definitions of reckless disregard and deliberate ignorance, and it gave the government more discretion over dismissing whistleblower cases under the False Claims Act. For some analysis, we turn to longtime procurement attorney, now a partner at Center Law, Alan Chavotkin. Alan, good to have you in studio. Always a pleasure, Tom. And let's talk about the super value case first, which changed some of these definitions of what you knew and when you knew it. What's going on here? Well, it beg me to just give you a little tutorial for some of your listeners who may not be as steeped in the False Claims Act as you are. The False Claims Act provides that any person who knowingly submits or causes to submit a false claim to the government is liable for damages, up to three times the government's damages. In addition to allowing the government to pursue perpetrators of fraud on its own, the False Claims Act allows private citizens to file suit on behalf of the government. And, and that's sometimes what they call called key tam. key tam suits or relators. And they uh, go back to the civil, the Middle Ages, actually. Well, yeah, very much. Key and tam. the original uh, False Claims Act was uh, 1863, the so-called Lincoln Law, because of uh, contractor fraud even back then. Uh, so these relators can then pursue the litigation on behalf of the government. And they can get then a a portion of the recovery, uh, in some cases a significant re- recovery, a portion of it. Uh, but there are numerous procedural actions uh, that they have to take that the law imposes on these relators because the suit is actually brought in the name of the United States government. Uh, so you've heard me say for years that in government contracting, words matter. And in the context of the False Claims Act, almost every word and paragraph and section uh, has been litigated because of the actions. I think even the Supreme Court called it a thicket because uh, I read that decision, a couple of those decisions, and they pack a lot into 37 pages. Well, they do. Uh, and part of the thicket has been caused by the Supreme Court themselves. And so that leads us to this uh, super value case. You've heard me say, and uh, some of our listeners who are of a certain age might remember the catchphrase from Senator Howard Baker during the 1973 Watergate uh, hearings about President Nixon. What did the president know and when did he know it? Uh, Well, that's really a good set of questions to look at this super value case. It's actually a combination, two cases that were uh, unanimously decided by the Supreme Court on June 1st. Uh, The False Claims Act uh, says, as you alluded to, that there has to be a knowing violation, and it can be one of three tests. Did the defendant have actual knowledge of the falsity? Did the defendant act in deliberate ignorance of the truth, or did it act in reckless disregard of the truth or falsity? And so earlier courts had, uh, appeals courts had said that the standard for judging that knowledge was uh, objective reasonableness. Uh, is, did anybody really believe that that uh, rule or regulation or law could be truthful and that there was no action or guidance from the government that told you otherwise? 
the Supreme Court rejected that objective reasonableness test and what it termed subjective beliefs. And I'd like to say, read a one sentence from the decision. The court said, what matters for an FCA case is whether the defendant knew the claim was false when submitting the claim, not afterwards, not what others thought, but did the defendant know the claim? And so that's the heart of this decision. So super value then got off the hook because its officers did not know of the violation when they submitted a claim? Well, super value got off the hook at this point, but the court didn't address whether super value knew or not. Sent it back to the Seventh Circuit Court to decide whether the facts of that case now aligned with the timing of what they knew and when they knew it. Sure. So let me ask you just one question about the implications. So say now the Supreme Court says it only matters what you knew when you submitted that claim. Suppose you submit the claim, takes the government some time to pay a bill, and you find out, whoops, we overcharged. This labor rate was wrong. What should a company do? Well, that's a slightly different case because now you overcharging is different than the knowledge of whether that claim itself was false. And so my advice is always notify the government immediately, pay it back, and sort through then whether that labor rate was true or false and whether the billing was accurate or not. Right. So in the case of the supervalued decision, then it really more affects the whistleblower type cases and whether a whistleblower can say, well, they knew about this all along. Exactly right. Exactly right. Again, it's not what somebody else knew. It's not two years later we found out that that was true. No, it's what did the defendant know at the time that they submitted that claim. Now, that may be hard to prove, and that's going to be a burden on the whistleblowers to to get at that. That was my question. It's tougher on whistleblowers now to bring these types of cases. It, it will be harder, and proof is going to be hard. Uh, one of the questions we're, we're asking ourselves is, how do you prove what a defendant knew? What does a company know? Is it what the CEO believed? Is it a committee of three, six, 200? So lots of debate yet to take place about this knowledge at the time the submission is made. We're speaking with Alan Chabotkin. He's a partner at the Center Law Group. I guess the old adage applies, a penny's worth of compliance can save you dollars worth of trouble later on. Very much so. Very much so. So, uh, you know, you can always ask the government for clarity or if there's an ambiguity in a regulation or uh, or a process, they may or may not tell you. But at least if you're raising those questions, you're providing some contemporaneous record that uh, what you believe that to be. Uh, you can always document what you believe that record to be. Ask competent lawyers in that subject matter what their opinion is. All of those go to the state of mind, if you will, at the time the submission is made. All right. And then with respect to the key TAM cases, there the Supreme Court had a was an eight to one decision. They said when a when the Justice Department could come into a key TAM case and dismiss it, and they said they can have it dismissed after the silent period, which has traditionally been the window of opportunity. That's exactly right. I mentioned earlier there are numerous procedural issues that the key TAM complainant has to go through, and the original complaint is filed under seal. That means it's secret. Uh, filed with the court. It's not public at the time, and it gives the Justice Department a chance to evaluate the merits of the case. If they take over the case, then the government controls the litigation and end the discussion. The government can pursue it. The government can dismiss it, and there's no question. 
but the government can also decline to take over a case and allow the relator to continue with the litigation. So the case in front of the Supreme Court was after five, the Justice Department declined. This was a, another health care case. Justice Department initially declined. And after five years of litigation, Justice Department asked to come back in and dismiss the case. And what the Supreme Court said is, no, you don't have an absolute right to dismiss cases. First, you have to ask to come back in to intervene in the case at whatever stage it is. And then the, if the district court agrees, then the district court can assess whether to uh, dismiss the case. But it was interesting, the Supreme Court made an interesting comment. It said that once the government has given permission, the court, the district court, must evaluate any request for dismissal over the relator's objections. And it should be honored, quote, in all but the most exceptional cases, even if the relator presents a credible assessment to the contrary. So strong preference for dismissal if the government requests it, even if it comes later. Uh, interesting in this case, you said eight to one is absolutely right. And the dissent came from Justice Thomas, who had written the majority opinion in the SuperValue case. And Justice Thomas's view was that the government only gets one chance to decide right at the beginning. They don't get a second chance or a third chance or a fourth sure. chance. One chance only. Well, how uh, often does the Justice Department actually get into the situation? Do they usually dismiss them in the period that it's sealed or do they try to jump in later? If I recall correctly, Justice said that the second round of interventions, fairly rare, 30 to 40 times over, you know, in a period of time when they've sought to come back in, and usually for extraordinary circumstances. In this case, Polanski case, the dismissal, there were some issues about privilege issues that they thought overrode the underlying value of the case. Yeah, so good or bad for whistleblowers in this case? Well, good or bad for whistleblowers, bad for lawyers because this could terminate a case long even while the litigation is ongoing and in this case it was five years. Uh, but a relator could be out a lot of money and effort if five years later justice right. says could be a different administration, you know, and likely will be in five years yes. and say, sorry, that's the end yep. of it. Our standards have changed. Our basis for for uh, pursuing this case has changed than it was or letting you take it on. Or the relator could very well have not done a good job of pursuing the litigation. And so any number of issues might arise that, that might trigger this. But it's interesting that uh, both sides got a little bit. The Justice Department lost on automatic withdrawal, automatic dismissal, but the court gave the Justice Department wide authority to uh, seek dismissal for appropriate reasons. And a final question. I talked to Steve Cohn of D.C., a lawyer who defends whistleblowers, and he says that the dissent by Justice Thomas, that one vote, contained the seed of a constitutional challenge to the whole Keytam case apparatus in the first place. Is that your sense of the reading of this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it is very clear. Justice Thomas, actually not only Justice Thomas, who was the dissenter, but he was joined by Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett. And they raised the question of whether the entire scheme of permitting these relator cases is constitutional. They raised that. It's not part of the decision in this case. They raised it signaling that they'd be interested in taking that issue on some point later. Yeah, there's nothing ever dormant or settled in this business, is there? Rarely. Alan Chavotkin is a partner at the Center Law Group. Thanks so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
The White House's new strategy for expanding the national cyber workforce relies a lot on action at the agency level. It argues the federal government should be a leader in adopting skills-based hiring practices rather than just relying on this or that college degree. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday brings us more. And tell us more of what's in this new strategy, Justin. Yeah, this National Cyber Workforce and Education Strategy, as it's called, was released earlier this week by the Office of the National Cyber Director. And it really lays out the Biden administration's approach to meeting both immediate cyber needs, cyber vacancies, and and longer-term cyber workforce trends. And really, the demand for cybersecurity skills for, for a lot of years now has outpaced the supply of qualified personnel, depending on what kind of uh, data you use, there is something in the range of 700,000 vacant cyber or IT related jobs nationwide. And, you know, the White House and the strategy is saying there's a lot of barriers to accessing both cyber education and training. And so I think the first thing to mention here is that this is not just something that federal agencies are going to have to do. This is going to rely on schools, colleges, universities, the private sector, all kind of coming together to follow the different pillars in the strategy. But for federal agencies here, I think there's a few things to mention. First, there's a lot of funding already behind this. Uh, Officials point to programs in the bipartisan infrastructure law the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act, different you know grants and, and other programs that uh, kind of fund cyber training and other things like that. And then for agencies in terms of their own hiring and training, Kemba Walden, the acting national cyber director, says agencies can really play a big role in expanding the number of, quote unquote, good paying middle class cyber jobs to a more diverse range of people. Here's Walden speaking at the Atlantic Council earlier this week. The federal government is seeking to remove barriers that prevents cyber talent from getting that critical first job. This will benefit both early cyber talent, new to the workforce, and seasoned job seekers, new to the cyber field. I challenge America's other sectors similarly to explore ways to reduce barriers to entry. Okay, and so therefore, what should individual federal agencies be doing right now under this new strategy? Yeah, right now, the Office of Personnel Management has actually already released guidance on what's called skills-based hiring instead of, you know, just relying on certain degrees and certifications and laying that out in a, you know, complicated job posting. Uh, you know, you use skills-based assessments to figure out whether someone is is qualified for a certain job. And, you know, Rob Shriver, Deputy Director at the Office of Personnel Management, says that could really help, you know, across our whole range of technology roles. We are exploring ways to realign many of the tech, cyber, AI, and data roles and job series to skills-based hiring, completely eliminating the need for previous work experience or a degree if you can demonstrate that you've got the skills to do the job. Not only does this expand the talent pool for agencies to pull from, but it also removes barriers that once held qualified people back from public service. And Justin, a lot of agencies have grant programs and other cooperative types of agreements with some of the less traditional types of institutions, the historically black colleges and universities, Spanish-speaking serving schools and universities, places like that, that have been untapped sources of talent. So when uh, Kemba Walden was talking about lowering barriers, I think that's also part of what she meant. Do you think so? I think so as well. I mean, there's been a number of colleges, universities, and private sector companies that have come out and made commitments to expand certain cyber training programs, to expand opportunities for you know both younger workers. Because traditionally, what you see in a cyber posting is is they want this sort of unicorn. It's a 
it's a it's someone with all these different degrees uh, 10 years of experience but it's still an entry level job somehow and that that that's where they're looking to really make a difference is no longer have that situation uh happening really at least across the federal government where they can control those job postings. And then there's the issue of security clearance, which is another question for another day, but they'd like 10 years of experience, you know, and clearance. So therefore, training and professional development, is that the government's role? And how does that all happen under this strategy? Yeah, there's some significant efforts laid out for the federal government on on training. Uh, You know, first, it it pushes agencies to look at reskilling, upskilling and professional development opportunities across the federal workforce. It points to some existing programs. Uh, One is the federal virtual training environment managed by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. There's the Open Opportunities Platform run by OPM, and then the Cyber Vets Program uh, actually run by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Those are all existing, you know, sort of professional development opportunities to get people into the cyber workforce. And then at the same time, the White House and some other lead offices here are going to explore the creation, quote unquote, that's their term, for, of a federal cyber workforce development institute. This will be a central place that provides standardized role-specific skilling reskilling, upskilling, some sort of curriculum guidance and training for entry-level positions in cyber across the government. So that's something to watch out for going forward. Sounds like something the Harvard General Studies program could convert to, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Sorry, folks. And with respect to pay in government, Kemba Walden mentioned that, that you know these should be jobs that pay well. Government jobs at that level generally pay okay, but maybe not as much as Meta is paying or something. Yeah, I mean, that this is one area where the strategy is a little lighter on details. Of course, you know, one of the number one things that agencies confront when trying to recruit cyber uh, folks is that they can't offer as high pay as, as you mentioned, Google and Meta and, and even government contractors cannot offer higher pay than, than, of course, the federal government in most cases. So the strategy really stresses that agencies should take advantage of hiring and pay flexibilities, things like student loan repayment programs. Uh, you know, there's different pay authorities that they can use for certain roles and then relocation incentives, for instance, as well. And then there are systems in place at some spots in the federal government. There's the Defense Department's Cyber Accepted Service, the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System. They can offer higher pay, well, much higher pay compared to the traditional general schedule system for cyber positions. But the strategy really doesn't have any specific you know, way to address this across the rest of government. That's something that former Federal Salary Council Chairman Ron Sanders uh, pointed out to me. He says it's one of his disappointments with this new strategy, which otherwise he called good. Your career progression opportunities are limited. Your pay is limited because you've got to rely on not only your agency's willingness to and ability to pay, but others if you want to be part of the special rate world. So to me, that's the single biggest flaw in that fourth pillar of the uh, workforce strategy is that it still takes a very traditional um, agency-by-agency approach. Yeah, well, agencies operate within statutory and regulatory norms, and they can't stretch too far beyond them. Anything else we need to know about that strategy, Justin? Yeah, I think also on hiring, it calls for creating across-the-board training to create Uh, really a cadre of human resources professionals who are at least better equipped to take advantage of the cyber talent, you know, pay and other management tools that exist today. I think that's something that's come up in a lot of reports on cyber workforce is that obviously the CIO wants to recruit someone, but it's really the HR team that drives that. And if they're not 
familiar with different special pay authorities and things like that, they might not know how to take advantage of them. So OPM and, and some other offices are going to create that training program for HR specialists. And then data is the last thing to mention. They want to, you know, make sure agencies are better using better data to inform cyber workforce management. So there's going to be some efforts to adhere to, you know, NIST's NICE framework, the workforce framework for cybersecurity, to really drill down into more modern, uh, better defined cyber workforce roles across government. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.